On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like a path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and on today's episode, I have fire engineer Watson with me. Uh, Watson's also a, uh, a paramedic. He's been a firefighter and on the job for 10 years. He holds a certification as a rescue technician. Um, and he's got one of those stories today that, you know, I I feel like is more likely to happen in a small town than anywhere else. So, uh, Watson... The mic is yours. Go ahead and share your story from the road. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Watson Barsh. Um, I'm 29 years old, and uh, I've been a paramedic, like uh, Phil said, for about 10 years, uh, working in my current department for about five and a half years. I've seen everything from you know small town fire departments, volunteer departments, and currently working uh, professional fire department. It's a little uh, larger in size than what I'm used to. I'm assigned to Rescue One currently. It's one of the busiest trucks in our uh, city. Uh, I'm also assistant fire chief um, down in another department located in Ohio. So I work in uh, West Virginia and Ohio. I do a little fire and EMS instructing on the side, a little uh, adjunct instructing as an EMS instructor at a local college. I spend a lot of uh, free time, you know, going to different classes and trying to really dedicate myself to the craft and, and doing things for the fire and EMS service. But with the little free time I do have, I like to go out local breweries and bars. Uh, I got three Huskies, JC, Carter, and Ariel. I play with them a lot, take them out a lot. I go hiking, biking, and I love to travel. Um, I do uh, live on a little uh, small farm on the uh, outskirts of a 
small little town here, so it keeps me busy doing a lot of work like that. I've worked in uh, multiple factions of public service in my career, uh, from career fire to combination volunteer agencies. I've worked in emergency EMS agencies, interfertility transports, and firebase uh, EMS. Try to gain as much experience and kind of get that um, look from different um, sides of the spectrum there. I guess one thing that's a, a little different about me, I don't know if different is the right, right word, but uh, I am the first openly gay professional fireman on my fire department and uh, in the state of uh, West Virginia, as far as I know. I'm sure there's more out there, but uh, I haven't met any yet. I struggled early on in my life with it. You know, growing up in a rural area, it really wasn't something that was discussed or talked about. Uh, and there wasn't much help and assistance out there. So I was closeted all through high school, even for my family and friends. I didn't really know anyone openly gay. There wasn't a good network to really talk about it. Uh, eventually, I got kind of consumed with the guilt that there was something wrong with me. I, at the time, you, you know, people would think there was something wrong with you. You know, I, I kind of wanted to be normal. You know, I didn't ask or wanted to be gay. Uh, so it took me a couple years to really accept myself. So um, when gay marriage was uh, officially federally legalized, it was actually the day I came out. Um, you know, I was kind of worried about what my friends and families would think, but Fortunately, everyone that I know or most people that I knew was very accepting of it, including my friends and family. And those people that weren't really weren't my, worth my time. So I kind of cut those people out of my life and I'm uh, very open about it. And I try to be very supportive of the other people I meet that are kind of on that same path because coming out is a very hard thing to do. They're still the exact same person you knew, you know, the day before. So embrace that fact that they trust you enough to come out to them, support them. It's not an easy thing to do. Nobody really wants any special treatment or to be treated any differently. They just want to be themselves. So it's come with its challenges, but I'm grateful to work for such an accepting and supportive crew. So a little bit about my start. So why I got into Fire EMS. Actually, the day I turned 18, I started working in a coal mine. I was fresh out of high school. Uh, I was kind of following in my family's footsteps. My great-grandfather was a coal miner. Uh, my grandfather was a coal miner. My, so my uncles and cousins were all coal miners, and uh, including my dad. And I kind of thought that was my path, that was my destiny, and I was going to follow in that. So I was working at a coal mine for a little while, kind of out in a real rural area. And I was coming home one day. This really blind turn uh, out on a rural road. And I came across, uh, around the turn, and I noticed there was my coworker's vehicle. It was crashed head-on into this tree, and uh, this tree was on the edge of a steep embankment. You know, rural West Virginia roads, you got a lot of real steep embankments and uh, hillsides and things like that. Me and another coworker pulled up in separate vehicles to stop and see if he was in the vehicle, see if he was okay, so... I approached the embankment on the driver's side, and I looked down over the hill to see if maybe he had fallen out of his vehicle and went down over the hill. And my coworker had gotten out of the vehicle and went to the passenger side to kind of look through the window to see if the person was still in the vehicle. Unbeknownst to us, the driver was okay, had hitched a ride to get a tow for his truck. There was no... Uh, cell service out there. So best thing to do was he got in a car with somebody else and went to nearest town to get a tow. Well, while we're looking in the vehicle, uh, another vehicle came speeding around the turn 
And uh, as I look back, the vehicle's squealing this brake. It's starting to fishtail in the middle of the road. And I look over, and my coworker's standing right there on the road. And as he tries to get away in an attempt to dodge the vehicle, he slipped and fell. And uh, the vehicle struck him right in the skull at a significant speed. Uh, the vehicle was able to stop without running him over, but it was a significant damage to his head. And as he lay on the ground bleeding, I didn't know what to do. It was a sudden real realization that I don't know how to treat this guy. I don't know how to take care of this guy. I had no idea what to do. So I ran up the road because more cars started speeding around the turn to try to get people to stop. Eventually, we were able to get in contact with 911, and I waited and watched as the fire department and EMS vehicles showed up on scene and flight crews were landing in a nearby area. Those people just went to work, and they went and started helping this guy. And even though he was in real bad shape, they were able to stabilize him and get him out to a local trauma center get treated. And uh, the man kind of went home, and he was doing well, and, and he recovered fairly well. But I did not want to find myself in that position where I don't know how to take care of somebody. So I joined a local volunteer agency at this time, and that was kind of the history of it. I fell in love with the job, um, going on medicals, going on fire calls, going on anything uh, rescue-related, vehicle, extrication-related. It really felt like I had found my true calling. And it came to the point where I decided that the coal mine wasn't for me. It may have been for my uncles and families and dad, but it just wasn't for me. So I decided to leave the coal mine and leave all that big money behind and make a career out of uh, firing EMS. Yeah, it sounds like that that crash was a life-changing moment for you and um, certainly changed the trajectory of your life. Absolutely. Um, I don't think I would ever even found my true calling. And I, I do believe this is my true calling, but, you know, if that terrible accident wouldn't have happened, I don't think I would have ever even left the coal mine. I don't think I would have ever considered the fact that this would have been my job, you know, would have made a career out of it. And um, I guess like things work in mysterious ways in that instance that, you know, I wasn't very happy at the mine, but I was making a lot of money. And now I might not make as much money, but I'm a whole lot happier with what I do. Yeah. And I think that's probably the secret to life is just being happy with the job that you're doing. I agree. Um, but that's not the the major incident that I really wanted to talk about this, uh, this discussion. Uh, why that was a life altering incident for me. The, the big incident came some years later when I started into getting my EMT and, um, that one is very near and dear to my heart, and it even further changed my path in life as well. Because at that time, I was still volunteer at the fire department, um, and I had not started working as a full-time uh, career fireman yet. So the incident I'd like to discuss, it was uh, back in early September, uh, I think 2014. It was around 3 p.m., and uh, I was out with the local volunteer fire department, and uh this department filled pools with our tanker, you know, to kind of support the community and things like that. I recall it was a uh, rather warm day for the beginning of September. Sun was shining, not many clouds in sight. And uh, I was with an experienced medic at the time who was helping me fill the pool. And I remember hearing on the radio, just as we were kind of working, is there was a motor vehicle crash in a small town over from us. Well, we didn't get called too much to this 
this little town, but so I didn't really think much of it. Well, when we were finishing up, rolling up the hose and everything, we were listening to the radio and there's a shaken voice requesting us to the scene, specifically for our paramedic. And you can hear the urgency and panic in his voice as he requested our response. Well, there wasn't a whole lot of paramedics in the area at the time, you know, maybe one or two. There's a lot more now than there was then. So you knew it was going to be bad if they were calling for it. So we head back to the station, grabbed our gear. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was in EMT basic class at the time. I was eager. I was excited to try to use some of those new skills that I was just starting to learn. So I jumped on the engine and a crew took the ambulance and we started out of town towards the call. We were listening real attentively on the radio as additional ambulances and crews were uh, requested reporting multiple injuries. So we raced to the scene as fast as we could. At this point, I started to have this kind of sinking feeling in my chest, like something wasn't right. Something was wrong. Maybe I was worried about being a new EMT and making sure I was proficient in my skills. Uh, maybe I was just nervous about working the extrication. I wasn't sure exactly why I was worried. I just knew that something really wasn't right. It wasn't going to be like your standard run-the-mill car accident. Uh, car accidents in this area, they're either very minor, where you just have kind of a car just kind of went off the road, or you just had a, a minor collision, or they're really bad. And this was going to be the latter. So I sat in the back of this old 86 Mac open cab engine. You know, the there's, there's a small little panel there to kind of keep you inside, but air's flowing in and out. You know, it's an older engine, and I opened up, there's a window in between the, the back of the cab to the front, and I opened up the window, and I tried to yell to my officer, where was this? Where was this call? And he told me the location of the accident, I started to really worry. The MVA was on this back country county road, and it intersects with this lane where I grew up, and on this lane is my whole family, and that's really all that's on it. Um, it's my aunts and my uncles. I had moved a few years prior, but my entire family still lived out there. My uh, cousins, grandparents, dad, they all lived out on that lane. So I started to worry, you know, could it be someone I knew? Was it a family member? And uh, the radio chimed in again, and there's still multiple people trapped in the vehicle, and they needed additional extrication tools. And at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of tools to get around to kind of cut up a car which is what those extrication tools are for. They, there wasn't uh, the best tools in the world, you know, a bunch of small volunteer fire departments. They can't afford the latest and greatest of everything. So hopefully we had the right equipment we needed. At this point, my heart started racing, but I recalled I had a job to do and I need to stay focused. That's my job. I need to get my mind together and, and focus on task at hand. So my officer and I, we discussed our plan of action route. I was going to pull all the cribbing to stabilize the vehicle and the extrication tools off the rig. And I'm going to stage them near the vehicle when we arrive. That way, everything's there and ready to go. The ambulance was right behind us as we started out this two-lane paved country road and started to crest this hill. And halfway up this hill, you could see all the lights flashing in the distance. We had a decent response time. It was evident we were second company arriving on scene, so we had gotten there pretty fast since we were already out. And as we pulled up, we could see a single four-door sedan laying mangled in the road on its roof, um, something you really only can envision in movies. It wasn't. Uh, it, it was very hard to look at the car because it was so destroyed, so destructive. It's hard to explain over the the 
radio how bad this car really was. As I hopped out of the back of the engine, I could smell come some smoke in the air with burnt rubbers from the tire squealing the hot oil from the engine. It was a very distinct smell. I quickly looked around as I noticed people were panicked and crying. Police were on scene at that point working to get everyone back to kind of a safe location. So there was this fenced-in cow field to my right, and the lane to my family's farm was right there on the left. And I noticed the car. It wasn't a car I recognized. And as terrible as it sounds, I was overcome with a breath of relief. Like, this isn't going to be someone I know. This isn't going to be a family member I would have recognized the car. I quickly grabbed some cribbing and ran uphill to the scene. And there was multiple bystanders around who witnessed the crash. And there was an empty fire extinguisher on the ground. As I began to stabilize the car, I overheard the report from a bystander to my company officer that the vehicle was traveling at a high rate of speed. It crested the top of this hill and missed the turn on the way down. Uh, The vehicle had rolled multiple times, landing on its roof right next to a ditch. Initially, the car was actually on fire, but bystanders were able to put it out. There were also reports of a person trapped underneath the vehicle, There was a bunch of bystanders that were, again, able to push on the car. Three or four people were pushing on one side of the car enough to relieve pressure of this person trapped below. Uh, They can kind of make out kind of his legs. So they were trying to lift that car up a little bit just to get, just to bring that pressure off that person. The initial crews on scene, uh, they rapidly cribbed the vehicle, captured the load before we arrived on scene to keep it from moving any farther. And one victim, which was uh, evident later, was the driver, was discovered to have self-extricated from the vehicle. He was able to crawl out of the vehicle and found under the care of the initial EMS crew on scene. He was in a frantic state. He was really upset and really worried. And uh, as I gathered and staged the rest of the equipment, we began to get to work because there's at least one other person still under the vehicle. And uh, at first, we didn't know how many victims were in the vehicle. We just knew the one under the car and the one that had self-extricated. So we immediately went to get the guy underneath and access the second victim who was partially trapped under the vehicle. Uh, The vehicle was actually laying on his legs. And the patient was a teenage boy. He was found semi-conscious with uh, some partial entrapment. Paramedic was able to get access to the patient and begin some definitive care, you know, checking for a pulse of blood pressure, getting uh, IV, running some fluids and some, some lines in the person while the fire crews went to work. Uh, we worked on the stabilization of the vehicle and came up with a plan to remove the victim. And uh, after a few minutes, we were able to free the kid from the wreckage. Uh, we put him out from underneath the vehicle. We were able to lift the vehicle slightly and uh, onto a backboard. And I just remember pulling this kid out from underneath this car and we're putting all the straps on him and we're packaging him up on the backboard and his arms were just laid down on the side flaccid. And I recall the paramedic asking him to put his hands on his chest, you know, lift up your hands. They're getting in the way. Put your hands on your chest. And the patient repeatedly stated, do it for me. Lift my arms up for me. I'm just too tired. I'm too tired to lift my arms. At that point, that paramedic did a brief neurological exam, and he was paralyzed at the at the time from the neck down. He wasn't able to move his legs. He wasn't able to move his arms or anything. Uh, still able to breathe, but had lost complete control of his extremities. 
So we loaded the patient up into the ambulance as a paramedic went to treatment and rapid transport to a local trauma facility. More crews started coming in, more paramedics started coming in. And uh, after removing the victim, we looked over the car again. It was so mangled and destroyed, you could barely see into the vehicle. We weren't sure if there's anyone left in the vehicle. We all kind of took a moment to just stand there and just kind of stop for a second. And then I've heard the sound from the vehicle, and I would never forget it as long as I live. It was this horrific, just absolutely horrifying scream coming from the car. It was almost surreal, like something out of a movie, but just much, much worse. It was very high-pitched, almost like a, a, a witch, and it was very intermittent. We knew that someone else was in that vehicle, but we had no plan or idea how to get them out at that point. So we were, you know, a small local volunteer fire department. Like I mentioned earlier, we didn't have the latest, greatest tools or technology. Our extrication tools were outdated. You know, if if you're not keeping up with modern cars and anatomy, the, the modern cars are changing so vastly and greatly that if you're not keeping up with your tools, you're not going to be able to get through these cars. Well, we didn't have any stabilization struts or airbags. We had wood. We had cribbing, and that's all we really had. So we couldn't do anything to really lift the vehicle. We couldn't really do anything to gain better access. We had very basic equipment, and we had very basic training. It wasn't something that we did a whole lot. Uh, we had a couple car accidents maybe a year, but it wasn't something where we seen a whole lot of people trapped that needed extricated. We weren't equipped to handle the task at hand. So we began to come up with this plan as other companies showed up on scene and everyone kind of started to converse. I just remember everyone standing around the vehicle and just trying to find ways. Of how are we going to get access? Ideas were thrown back and forth as a medic attempted to find a limb to start any form of treatment. So we started to cut and spread, but to no avail, there was just no access available to us. We couldn't get into the vehicle. And around this time, as I was working to extricate the patient, I felt this hand on my shoulder. And I turned around and looked to see my frantic aunt staring back at me with these red, tear-stained eyes. She pushed past the police on scene and kept screaming at me, That's him. That's him. That's your cousin. And I was in disbelief, you know. I didn't recognize the car at all, so I couldn't believe what I was hearing. My heart began to race, and I started to sink it couldn't be true. There was no way that was my cousin. That scream I heard didn't sound anything like him. There's no way it was him. I grew up really close with all my my cousins. We were a very tight-knit, close family. I mentioned that we lived out on that lane, out in the country. It was only us. There was just five of us. We played every day and night as kids. You know, We only had each other. There was no other uh, local families to go hang out with. It was just our families together. Uh, that played with each other out there. We were an inseparable crew, and I, I kind of looked around in shock as crowds started to form. Uh, it was a two-lane road, and both sides were blocked. People began to come home from work at this time. It was it was starting to be that time where people were coming home from work and couldn't get through, so they'd walk up and see what was going on. And more police were coming in, you know, state patrol and uh, sheriff's deputies to try to control the crowds. Uh, it was a pretty busy road for being out in the middle of nowhere, but it was that one road in and out of out of the place. And I remember the news arriving on scene, and they started to film the whole thing. And 
I just look back and I recall the cameraman and news anchor coming when within probably about 50 to 75 feet of the car and pointing that camera directly at the wreckage. You know, they're just trying to get a good story. But I was enraged. It's not something you think about when it's not your family in there. It's very disrespectful when you see people pulling out their phones and filming accidents and fires. You don't think about it until it's someone you know. Like that's your family someone's trying to get a story on. And I was blinded with rage at that point, and I had charged the cameraman, the news anchors, and I was screaming all these obscenities at them. I was ready for a fight. I was I was ready to fight them with everything I had. And the police had their back to me, and they didn't see me coming. So I was going to get one good swing in on this person. And I remember coming within mere feet of them, and their eyes grew big and wide, and they tried to stand back real fast, and... Just then a person jumped out of the crowd and grabbed me and he was holding me tight. And it was one of my uncles, uh, not the uncle whose son was in the wreckage, but another uncle that lived out on this lane. And um, he was on his way back home from work. He was a respiratory therapist. He worked at a local hospital and he had walked up to see what happened. One of my other aunts had told him that this person was um, my cousin. And he had talked me down. He had got me on the right path, keep me working. He definitely saved me from a, uh, you know, from going to jail that night. That's for sure. He told me, go in, do everything I could. And the police had finally got a, got a, a hold of the scene and had the news anchors and cameramen back away from the scene. And I walked back to the car and I knew that I had to do something to help my cousin. So the, the extrication, it was, it was long, it was arduous and as we used what little equipment we had, you know, we were using everything that people could muster together. Any nearby fire engine was pulling their tools off and um, pulling whatever they could to try to help. And everyone was working together at this point to free my cousin. I mean, you see a lot of animosity in some local volunteer fire departments, with, you know, some small town issues and things like that. But at this moment, everyone was working for one common cause. I like to say it wasn't even a vehicle extrication at this point. It was a disentanglement. You know, we couldn't just remove my cousin from the vehicle. That's extricating. But we had to actually physically remove the vehicle from my cousin. This whole time, you could hear the screaming, but it started to get more and more intermittent. It'd be one loud scream for about three or four seconds, and then it would stop. And then one loud scream for, you know, three or four seconds of stop. And then they got shorter. And then the screaming just, it stopped completely. At that point, we knew, you know, it was life or death. If we don't get him out of here, he's he's going to die. So we had to perform something known as a rapid extrication, which is get in there and just get them out. And we had cut enough of the vehicle away at this point to discover my cousin. And uh, he was actually in the backseat of the car when they crashed and what had happened was he was actually out with his friends. They were coming home from work one day or coming home from school, coming home from high school after some physical training for football. And it was actually his birthday and his friends were taking him home because that night he was going to go out and get his driver's license. So they were kind of rushing on the way home to get him there and get his driver's license. And when they came over the turn, they were going way too fast and missed the turn and rolled the vehicle. He was kind of in the backseat of that car, and that's why I didn't recognize it. Well, the sheer force that was exerted on the body during the crash and multiple rollovers forced his skull between the front seat and the B-post. 
and he was unresponsive as we pulled him from the wreckage. And about th- this time, you know, the flight team landed in nearby Cowfield, and the fence was cut by the farmer as the crew pushed their way through the field to the roadway. And uh, we had placed my cousin on the cot, and I couldn't even recognize him. You know, the amount of bleeding he sustained was some of the worst I've ever seen in my careers. I've seen, to this date, I've seen some really bad, gruesome stuff and gruesome calls, but I guess it maybe just hit differently because it was my cousin, but it was a very bad trauma. You know, he had a, a significant skull fracture, temporal skull fracture, internal bleeding, abrasions, lacerations, everything you could think of, everything you could have in that moment, he had. And he was laying on that cot and uh, on a backboard. He had a weak threading pulse as he was assessed. And immediately the paramedics and flight crews were working together. They were starting multiple lines, treating significant wounds and attempting to maintain an airway. And uh, about this time, my cousin, he went into traumatic arrest, which a lot of people might not know this, but most people do not survive traumatic arrest. It's very unlikely to survive traumatic arrest. Even if you're in the hospital at that point, sometimes it's very unlikely to survive. We immediately started CPR. I was yelling at him. I was just screaming in his face, wake up, wake up, wake up. And uh, I was pulled away by a family friend in an attempt to be comforted. And I'm not a spiritual man by any means, but I begged and prayed for someone to help him. Eventually, I was able to regain my composure, and I went back to help with CPR. You know, I couldn't let him die. He regained pulses, and they continued to work to stabilize him. His airway was compromised as a medics. Uh, they began to intubate and decompress. And uh, when they went to tube him, he coded again, went into traumatic arrest again. Uh, I again started CPR when I heard someone screaming from the distance. And someone had pushed me back to take over CPR as I saw my other cousin, the victim's older brother, running down the hill, pushing past police. And I ran up to him and I grabbed him in this big, tight bear hug. And I just recall telling him, you don't want to see him this way. Don't look at him this way. Don't go. That's not him. That's... That's not that's not your brother. Don't look at him. That's not your brother. And um, I held him tight and away from the scene as crews continued to work. And, you know, I'm holding on to him. And we're talking and he's trying to ask me a bunch of questions. And, you know, the crews are working, do everything they can. And uh, not not long after that, I look up in my and I see my uncle, which is the victim's father. And uh, bear in mind, my uncle is a He's a big man. He's he's strong. He's a football coach. He's just big in general. He's barreling down the hill at full speed screaming. And this is not this is like a raging bull. This is not someone you want to get in between. And his eyes could tell you everything you needed to know. He knew that that was his son. He knew and and, and I knew there was no way I was going to stop him. So I wouldn't have tried to stop him if that was my son. I couldn't imagine what was going through his mind at the time. You know, I would have done the exact same thing. So I ran up behind him and there's these three police officers that he had run through and, and, and they're all holding him back and grabbing him and trying to push him away from the scene. And it, he's screaming and yelling and they're doing everything to try to keep him back. You know, he's screaming, is that my son? Is that my son? Is that my son? I ran behind him and grabbed him in an attempt to console him. About that time, you know, his son had regained a pulse and was successfully intubated and stabilized enough for transport. 
there was IV access that was established and the flight crew started to hang bags of blood. You know, my uncle, he started to regain his composure and the rest of his family came over and they were able to see his son before they lifelighted him out of there. Uh, it was a very emotional scene. You know, everyone's adrenaline was running high. They pushed him through the field and loaded him what's known as hot into the helicopter, which means that the uh, the helicopter, the the blades don't start spinning. They have the they have the rotor spinning as you're loading them into the helicopter. And uh, he was lifelighted to the closest level trauma center, which is about an hour away in Pittsburgh. My uncle immediately headed to the hospital with his family, and uh, my family came to pick me up at the scene as everyone else was still cleaning up and and talking and doing their reports. And walking back to the hill, I recall the sun; it was starting to set, and I'm walking up over this hill that they had crested when they wrecked, and I could just see broken glass; just it was shimmering on the pavement. And I looked down and. I just remember these streaks of blood and bit of hair and skin kind of scraped across the roadway. And that, that, that really stuck with me for a long time. Cause I knew that was his, his head and his skin. And at that moment, it was the worst call that I had ever experienced as well as the worst trauma and probably is one of the worst calls to date. I've seen a lot of bad traumas and accidents, but that one really, when it's your own family, it, it doesn't matter how, gruesome it is it, it's it's just the worst thing that you could deal with is kids and family and I was devastated you know I began to question if is this a job for me is this what I want to do did I do enough could I have done better could I have done anything different and is my cousin going to die because of me and my actions so I went home I got in the shower I remember just washing you know my blood soaked arms off my gear it was coated in his blood and my arms were coated in his blood, and I just remember sitting in the shower probably for 15 or 20 minutes in utter disbelief. Like It felt like a fever dream, you know? Once I was cleaned up, we drove an hour away to Pittsburgh to see him in the hospital. When we got to the hospital, my whole family was there and gathered, and we were in the waiting room with just us, and it was so solemn and quiet. Nobody was saying anything. Nobody was talking. Everyone was just in absolute quietness, and no one had any information, but everyone was praying for the best. It was hours before the doctor had came out. And he was critical but stable. The doctor stated that the actions of the paramedics and firemen were what kept him alive. And we were overwhelmed with joy at that point. The the odds of surviving traumatic arrest again are slim to none, and my cousin was actually able to beat those odds. So fortunately this story does have a happy ending. After months of surgeries and therapy, he was released back home to his family. Miraculously, he had very little deficits. Today, he is alive and well. I actually just went and seen him yesterday and had a couple drinks. And the other two boys had also recovered. Um, the paralyzed patient was transferred to a state-of-the-art rehab center. And he was able to regain most of his control of his body again, including walking. And the driver was mostly unscathed, minus a few cuts and bruises. One of the, the cool things is my cousin still keeps his, in his truck, he still keeps the seatbelt out of that car in his truck that he was wearing the, the day he was in that accident, which, you know, goes to tell you that a lot, you know, pretty much the stars had to align for things to work away and things to take away from that. Well, that, that is just an incredible story. And I, I'm so glad that your cousin survived it. And, uh, 
it certainly sounds like everybody that was involved in that rescue just, you know, worked as, as hard as they possibly could and really tested their skills that day. And, um, you know, we don't always get wins on this, on this show, but it's always good to hear a win, especially when it's a family member. So thank you so much for sharing that story. I got goosebumps a couple of times listening to you, to you talking about it. I could hear, you know, in your voice, just how it affected you. And it's just, it is an absolutely incredible story of survival. Well, thank you. It is a very hard story, and it's even hard to say and talk about a lot of times. But I feel like it's it's good to discuss that you know there is hope, and there there is a lot of takeaways from the story. And you know what did, what did I learn from the story? And and this call was it was evident to me in this line of work. You can't just be okay at your job; you have to be great. You know, everyone should strive for protection if you're a firefighter, or EMT, and you know you have to really get good and master your craft. If you're going to be successful, you know, everyone did their absolute hardest and best that day on that call. And there was a very good outcome, but I feel like I could always do better. I felt like I could have been better. You don't want to fail your citizens. You don't want to fail your crew. You don't want to fail your department. And I don't want to fail myself. I I refused to kind of be a failure. I wanted to provide the absolute best care for the people I serve because you know, you never know who the next call is going to be. Mother, father, friend, family. You know, I must always be prepared. And I was in a really dark, bad place after that call for a long time. And I felt like, you know, I could have done more and I should have been more prepared. And maybe if I had more training and I was really, really new into my career at this point, you know, I had only been a fireman for two years and I had just started EMT class and I was consistently second guessing if the job was right for me. I remember going back to EMT class and having like an emotional breakdown um, because that day we started covering trauma and I just, I couldn't do it. I I felt like I I can't even talk about this right now. And I kind of fell into a deep depression. You know, we had my department instituted a critical incident stress debriefing. And while it did help a little bit, I still second guessed myself I spoke with some of the local firemen and paramedics on the call and, you know, tried to find out what, what could we have done better. And I think there's something you could take away after every single call, even if it goes perfectly right. There's something you can learn from it. There's always room for improvement in my mind, and I wanted to be that improvement. So instead of quitting and, and leaving this job behind, I, I decided to devote my life to it, you know, to do better, to become better, to be the person I want showing up to that call. And I feel like I'm still working at it, but I feel like I'm still doing that. I, I think I'm, I'm doing a good job at where I'm at, what I'm doing. You know, I passed my EMT with Flying Kellers. And this call was really my driving force of becoming a career firefighter. This made me decide this is absolutely what I want to do because I, I, I want to do this. I want to be that person that can make this change. I feel like I could devote my time and experience and do this and, it drives my passion for knowledge and bettering myself in my department. And I've since become a paramedic. You know, I'm taking every training I'm physically able to, specifically in auto extrication, dealing with car accidents and stuff like that. And I became a rescue technician to better prepare myself for any situation. I went to about two hours away to Columbus and for six months straight, I went and did this rescue technician course, learning every discipline from water to auto X to rope to trench to structural collapse to confined space to prepare myself for any situation. And uh, I'm currently assigned to rescue one in my city. 
know, I'm, I'm enrolled in EMS leadership courses currently, and I'm also finishing up my degree in fire science. I, uh, I plan to further my paramedic to critical care and work part-time as a flight paramedic to uh, further hone in on my EMS skills. And I've also found a passion in teaching, and I became a fire and EMS instructor as well. I like to pass on what I learned to other people so that they can be prepared for these kind of calls. I'm truly in love with this job and what I do, and I really wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. For every bad day, you know, a good story is born, and that was my story. Well, Watson, I hope you'll uh, dig up another story and come back and share that with us at a later date. Thank you for taking the time to, to share this one, and uh, I, I hope that the audience gets to hear from you again. All right. Well, thank you very much, Phil, for having me, and I really appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.